You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And, um, you know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money. And But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees. And it's it's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his in his head. It really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want. But it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if, if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating sales, and uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on sales, wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? Have you ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in, you know, six months from now? And then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know. It helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and uh, But also, I think if you just look at uh, like Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. You, if you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing you're doing okay. Doesn't make doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a, listen to this story of a 90-year-old woman um, from Michigan, 
decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son, Tim, daughter-in-law, Ramey, and their poodle, Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? So we, I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits. Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Mm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more... With the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got you got to anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts. 
which I couldn't agree more. Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than 30 bacterial outbreaks, primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads it's to so the hospital. so good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got, you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Okay. It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized. For heaven's sakes, we're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really – did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No. It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it. But that's it, it sounded right. It sounded it? like a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce, probably some clam and linguine meal. Mm, sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has. Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah. No, no. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, they were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then... Ask for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just 
trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. <laughs> she may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your mill. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's just technology. But I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are getting lulled to sleep. And we are sleeping through our own lives. The minute you have a free second, do you reach for your cell phone? Do you have to go check Facebook to see what your million friends are doing or have done? What is it doing to us? It's killing us. And again, it's just tech. I get it. It's just technology. However, this is still your life. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life just caught up in technology, what lesson are we sending our children? So before we sit there and try to fix our children's use of technology, make sure you take a really strong inventory of yourself. Are you addicted? If you lost your phone, would your life completely fall apart? Well, yeah. Who would I Who would I like? Well, I don't know. But that's pretty pitiful because if you lost your phone, you're still you, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know my friends' names or their numbers. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're not your real friends then. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, tech is being used everywhere. If you, I don't know if you heard this story about uh, cops. Um, North, Northeast Ohio police are hoping to figure out who left a bag of methamphetamine in a hotel trash, I guess. And they... They they feel horrible. The police department feels horrible for the owner's loss and wants to help. The tongue-in-cheek message was posted Tuesday to the Macedonia Police Facebook page and asked the owners of the drugs to call or stop by to claim them so officers can, in their words, make your day. It's a trap! <laughs> a photograph shows a baggie containing what detectives say is about a gram of high-grade crystal methamphetamine worth as much as 160 bucks. The detective at the department, about 20 miles southeast of Cleveland, said there were numerous empty bags in the hotel trash can. Police haven't identified who rented the room using a, uh, a gift card. Um, so if you're out there and you've lost $160 worth of high-grade crystal meth, about a gram's worth, give them a call. Or give us a call. No, don't give us a call. <laughs> No, 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 no. Don't give us a call. Ben, give the Macedonia Police Department a call. They're worried. They're worried about you. See, you can use tech to help people who have lost things. It's that simple. By the way, I used tech to find my my iPad once when I dropped it off my car, actually. I left it on my hood of my car. Drove away. I've only heard of like women doing that with their purses. Okay. Well, you need to get out more, Ben, because I'm not a woman and it wasn't in a purse. It was on my roof of my car and I drove away and I called my son and I'm like, have you seen my iPad? And he's like, no. And I said, it's missing. I lost it. And I was terrified. And he's like, well, dad, have you looked it up? Have you, have you tried to the find my iPhone app and the find my iPad app? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And about a minute later, he had found my iPad. He said, Dad, I found your iPad. It's traveling south on I-15. <gasps> what? 
Anyway, we tech, we contacted the iPad, told them to call this number. We know where you are. And within about an hour, hour and a half, we had our iPad back. Pretty cool. Tech is good. Tech making me happy. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. More fun, more tools to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, as an employer, coach, friend, parent, and spouse, one job that may, we, we might always find ourselves doing is motivating others, trying to lead others in uh, certain aspects of our life. Whether we're trying to increase work productivity or just trying to get our kids to do their homework, we are constantly faced with situations where we need to help push others. Some days we even find that uh, we may need to motivate ourselves as well. So how do we do it? What methods are the most effective? Uh, Dr. Sidney Finkelstein joins us. He is a returning guest of ours and is here this morning to help us uh, learn and understand better some rules for motivating others. Sidney, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be on again. Thank you. We love having you again. You are the Stephen Roth Professor of Management and the Faculty Director of the Center for Leadership at Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. When when you think about it, um, you know, we've all kind of gone to those training classes, the leadership programs that we have in our workplace. What's your take on those? I mean, a lot of people just don't like those trainings. Yeah, that's uh, that's unfortunately the uh, the case, and there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, but you know, the bottom line is there's no reason why it has to be that way. I, I feel like a lot of the training is is just people sitting in a classroom, which of course you're not ordinarily doing because everybody's out and about doing their jobs ordinarily. Right. And um, and you're you're passive, and you're the receiver of information from a lecture. And uh, some of those lectures, of course, could be very talented and engaging, and you might enjoy that. But for the most part, it's a one-way street, and uh, and I think that's one of the biggest flaws. I call um, um, I call the uh, kind of the alternative the seventy twenty ten rule, and that really means um, something like seventy percent of the time that you're in a leadership training or any type of training for that uh, for that matter, you should be actually doing stuff, doing an assignment, doing a project, working with other people. Uh, being much more hands-on and making it a meaningful project, 20% of the time should be interacting directly with your peers, and 10% of the time should be sitting back and, and just um, absorbing from uh, from lectures. It's kind of the reverse to what you usually see. Yeah, and in fact, um, I did a master's thesis on a, a training approach many, many moons ago, and what I found is people generally they generally learn more with like the 70 20 10 rule but most of them don't in i mean they might even enjoy it but they a lot of times they just like the laziness of being talked to hmm. being trained uh, I, yeah i i don't think uh, our job is to give people training programs that uh, that, that they, can be lazy is it exactly no exactly and so what's what's funny there's always been this historic problem of you know, do do you really want to learn? Because sometimes the the approach where you got to sit down and solve a problem and face to face communicate intimidates people. But apparently, like you're like the idea you're giving us the seventy twenty ten rule, it's more effective. It gets things moving. It uh, it does, and you know, people have to be willing to uh, to get better and to learn and, and advance them, themselves. 
the truth is if somebody doesn't really care, somebody's not really motivated, it doesn't matter what development program you come up with, it's not going to be very, very helpful. It makes me think really that uh, managers and people running HR groups should uh, should be pretty selective about who goes in. And the best run companies, you know, uh, it's considered a badge of honor to be uh, to be asked or invited uh, uh, to go to certain uh, programs because uh, uh, they know that they're they're meaningful and they're investing in in you and your uh, your own time and your own development. And that's uh, that's a good uh, you know that's a good culture to try to develop. Mm, I like that. Is I, I guess um, because there's a lot of money going into these programs as well, right? This isn't inexpensive. This is that's why you probably want to make sure you're choosing the right people to be there. Yeah, well, these things can cost you know, companies probably spend the tens of billions of dollars if you start adding it up uh, across um, business schools and other universities, uh, leadership training that's in-house within companies, all kinds of third-party vendor- vendors. There's, uh, there, there's a lot. And uh, I'd like to see more technology and more, um, more customization fit into these things because uh, it's not really a, a one-size-fits-all. You know, what, uh, what you might need in a program, it's not going to be identical to what I might need to get to, to get better. Presumably there's some overlap because they're, you know, we're, let's say we're in the same organization. We, uh, we're, we're, we're confronting some of the same challenges. But um, some of these, uh, some of the learning platforms that are becoming more and more popular, I think offer a really good uh, solution because each person through, usually through some type of assessment um, uh, activities, so that's actually one of the things that I've been doing around, around the Superboss work that I've, uh, I've developed, uh, gives you a sense of, okay, here are the three or four or five things you want to get stronger on, you want to work on, and then let's put together a, a customized curriculum. And you can do that in a digital sense hmm. where where you don't have to do exactly what everybody next to you is doing. I love that. And I guess the the downside to customizing is expensive, but it's so much more targeted to what you need. Yeah, it, it could be, but if you use... Again, these these learning platforms because they're digital and it doesn't require you know people like me to stand up in front of you. Uh, it's um, uh, it, it, it it does allow you to control your costs somewhat. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I think because you know it's a trade off between the customization, the effectiveness, the motivation as we're talking about, and and the cost. And I, I don't think that uh, I, I don't think it's more costly. I think it could be less costly. Yeah, and especially the with all the digital um, devices, you could deliver it as needed and where's you know most effective for the learner yeah i think that that's exactly where where we're at and you know you you and i are talking about this but uh, you know for the people that are in their 20s listening uh, today uh, they're saying well what's the big discussion of course it's going to be on my ipad it's going to be on mm-hmm. my uh, my smartphone and if it isn't i'm not interested Right. Well, for years, it, it meant you had to fly everybody in. Everyone had to be at the right location. And then you had to rent a hotel room and a training room or whatever. So it, the expenses, uh, man, it's it's kind of a neat time and day to be living. But interesting, it still goes back to the history of, of some of these training programs. And whether it's a leadership training, your name of your article is Why We Loathe Leadership Training. There are so many different things that could be made up in that kind of leadership realm of training, right? Well, that's absolutely the uh, the case, and and uh, you know people don't always like the training they get because it doesn't add uh, enough value. It's not uh, close enough to what they're actually doing on a day to day basis. The number one thing I see time and again with groups that I work with is they want they want to know how it applies, and I even tell them in 
in the beginning of any any program that I've created or been, been involved that I'm involved with, I, I tell them, you know, the, the litmus test here is whether you're going to be able to use these ideas in a very specific, practical way when you get back to work after a day or two or a week or what have you. And I think that's the um, I think that's the litmus test that everyone should should uh, should focus on. Hmm. What what are we trying to solve? What are we trying to get better at? And are we making sure that we're com- coming away with some actionable, specific ideas? And by by the way, you don't need twenty ideas. Nobody could do anything with twenty ideas. Uh, I, I think you know one or two really great ideas can really move the needle and would make the investment much more worthwhile. Yeah, and it might be easier to to master one or two. Instead of twenty, fifty, is um, as you look at it in your article, you brought up the seventy twenty rule, which is we we basically have to make sure that this is more about practical, hands on practice and application, um, and also another rule you just kind of got into is the customization, customize it to your world. I mean, if if you. I guess this is the hard part because you bring up the point that there are a chemical a chemical company might need different skills and or a different implementation of a practice than maybe, you know, an HR company. So to in order to customize, do you need to bring in experts to do that? Is there a way that you could just have your own people do the training and and customization? There's a, there, there are a lot of uh, a lot of factors to decide in, in that because uh, some companies will develop their own internal HR training people and they could be perfectly perfectly good but they've got to be world class and uh, I think people see right through any cost savings uh, moves by companies that say well let's use some of our ter- internal folks and they don't just match up to what uh, what you can get uh, uh, when you start looking for some of the uh, some of the most uh, experienced and talented people that are that are out there so that's something to uh, to pay attention to and um, uh, and, and I think when it comes to the the customizing part specifically I think one of the watchouts is when you go to a, a supplier a vendor a company a training company a university and they um, they design a program for you uh, I'd, I'd ask them so is this the same program you've given to you know a dozen other companies what, what's so special about about this how does it fit into our world and what are the specific takeaways? And this is also a really big uh, challenge for any training program. What are the what are the outcomes? How can we measure whether it has an impact or not? This has always been the biggest challenge when it comes to leadership or any any type of training. And and I have some sympathy towards it because um, sometimes it's about just getting better in terms of your your mindset and. and Expanding what you how you think about things and being able to specifically measure that is is difficult. On the other hand, I think the pressure towards measuring outcomes in pretty much everything we do is increasing, mm. and I think the best programs are going to have to figure this one out. Yeah, so you're going to have to get some some data to validate its worth, uh, and then I guess in the way in the end that that's good too, right? That makes sure that we we're we're measuring the right things and, and doing it the right way. We're speaking yeah. with uh, Dr. Sidney Finkelstein, and he's a uh, a faculty member um, at Tuck University. He's the Stephen Roth Professor of Management and the Faculty Director, Center for Leadership. He's walking us through his article, Why We Loathe Leadership Training. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Two more points that we can do to improve our leadership and motivation training. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about an article, Why We Loathe uh, Leadership Training, by Dr. Stephen Finkelstein. F- Dr. Finkelstein is a uh, the Stephen Roth Professor of Management and the Faculty Director at the Center for Leadership at Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. And uh, he's, uh, he's coming back to educate us some more. Thank you so much, Sydney, for being with us. Good to be on with you, Matt. Again, so we've talked about uh, the fact that you gotta you gotta take good use of your time when you bring these people in the classroom. And you're, I mean, the, the, I used to when I would do leadership training, I would always add up the money in the room, the cost and the opportunity costs of having all these people not back at their desks, and it, it's a lot of money when you think of it that way. Well, it really, uh, it really is, and you've got to uh, you got to respect that, right? Uh, right. You have to put together something that moves the needle, that is meaningful, and uh, and uh, you know the money thing is is obviously critical. But I think as a professional in this field, uh, you have a you have a personal responsibility to deliver, create, and deliver um, a program, a set of activities that are truly impactful that will make a difference that people will remember. And that's uh, that, that's the standard. I think uh, I think we all need to hold ourselves to. Mm. One of the points you make too is that we need to eat your own cooking. What do you mean? Yeah. So uh, I have um, I've been involved in some leadership programs where uh, I've led uh, groups of uh, quite senior executives uh, using some of the seventy twenty rule that we talked about, which is much more hands on projects and and activities and not just sitting in the classroom. And uh, they've been great experiences. But inevitably, the question comes up, well, you know, uh, is the executive committee, meaning the top 10 or 15 in the company, are they, uh, are they getting the same training? Are they getting the same experience? Because this has really been revealing, and they need to know about this. They need to, they need to be thinking about these things. And uh, I always tell the truth, obviously, and the truth very often is no, they actually don't want to do that or and they chose not to. Most of the time, the reason is because, well, their time is even more valuable, right? right. They're even right. They're, they're so busy, they don't have the time. It's not about cost when you get to the very top uh, top of the uh, pyramid. But uh, is it the case that they're so va- their time is so valuable that they can't learn the things that they think are so important or engage in the issues that they think are so important for the for the direct reports? It sounds it sounds a little bit ludicrous, and and I can tell you that the the power of a, a program, the power of a um, of, of an experience, really does get affected by whether the, the 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 people in the room, whether they're bosses, whether it's very very top or mid level, wherever they happen to be in a company, in any organization, whether their bosses are also engaged in this, because that's uh, that's in a way maybe the best the best measure of whether you know your boss thinks it's a good idea for you to go, but she won't do it herself. Well. Mm-hmm. That's everything you need to know. Well, and I learned if we can't get the bosses in the room, it's not going to trickle down. It's not going to work. Oh, that's uh, that's completely true. In fact, that's uh, close to one of the uh, other rules, if you will, that I uh, that I wrote about, uh, and that is uh, how how any type of leadership training program has to be closely integrated with your actual boss. Because just just think about this. No matter, you know, let's say you spend, I don't know, a week, a week out of the office doing different activities as part of a training program. Uh, how, how does that compare to how much time you're actually working in your team with your boss on a regular basis? Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's a huge difference. We spend so much of our time working with uh, 
uh, working with our colleagues and working uh, with and under our boss. And uh, so why wouldn't we want to uh, integrate that? Why wouldn't we want to have uh, that boss involved in, um, in the program and not just involved in the program, but, but engaging in a way that's going to reinforce and, um, and facilitate some of the learning that comes out of these, of these programs? Well, there's that cognitive dissonance, that, that weird moment where we're talking about something in the classroom and people in the back of their heads, they know, yeah, well, that, that won't work here because our bosses don't do it. But if that boss is in the room, I mean, I've had really powerful dialogues start up where, you know, the room was safe enough for people to say stuff and the executive didn't react. He just opened up and learned. And it was a powerful yeah. – It was. It, I mean, it was really, I guess, the essence of leadership. It's uh, it's great when that uh, when that happens, and I've uh, I've seen it as well. But then you do sometimes see the opposite, right? Which is when your boss is actually in the room. You know, do you really want to say everything you're you're thinking? And whenever I see that, uh, it's a signal. You know, this culture is not not where it needs to be. The best cultures are ones where people are unafraid to share in respectful, appropriate ways things that they that they believe in. And in fact, in the best companies, the best cultures, they're doing it, you know, whether I'm around or whether there's any leadership training going on or, uh, or not. But even, even if the boss is not there at the same time, I have found that most people, especially as you go further up in an organization, they're asking me and they're wanting to know, you know, are, are our bosses, are the top people in this company, are they engaging in this thing at the same, not at the same time, but at any time? Are they, are they being exposed to some of these ideas? Because if, if it's going to change how I think about my job and what I think the potential is for this company, then uh, it, was sure, it sure would be easier if uh, you know, my boss and bosses at the very top are also in the same page. Mm. It's sure, it sure is. I guess, too, this is um, a lot of times people just kind of say, oh, yeah, yeah, we've done that class. We've done it. But you're talking about a different thing. You're, ta- you're talking more about not just doing the training, but actually becoming, you know, changed by it, by, by being in, enveloped in it. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it, it's, again, it's this difference between being passive and saying, okay, I got that. It's like, I got the booster shot right? and I'm going to be okay versus totally engaging in the ideas, using the ideas, using them in a practical way on the job, uh, engaging with your boss, uh, maybe before, Sometimes during, but absolutely afterwards. It's um, I, I don't know if it's exactly the same analogy, but it's almost like you you know the passive approach, the simple approach is well, let's get that uh, let's get that inoculation, and I'll be I'll be fine. I won't I won't get sick. Versus the person that's going to go out and exercise every day, mm. uh, in addition to the inoculation because or the vaccine or whatever, because that's going to help them get better and better all the time, and that's. That's the essence of motivation. That's what you want for people in your in your organization. That's it. It's like becoming culturally like a learning organization, an organization that wants to grow, wants to develop, wants to live the highest level. How how do you instill that? I mean, do you hire that? Do you lead that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's uh, one of the one of the topics that I've spent a fair amount of time on over the last few years. And uh, as you know, uh, I wrote a book called Super Bosses. Yeah, uh, that came out a few months ago, and uh, and, and that book gets uh, gets close to this very question you're you're asking, which is how do you how do you motivate and energize people to create the type of culture environment that you want? And one one of the answers is to be looking for 
special, unusual talent, people that can make a difference. But there's also a big part about inspiration. And it's one of these, you know, soft words out there. But in my experience, it's a big differentiator. Are you able to energize and, and, and inspire the people that work for you? Truly believe that they are the ones that can make stuff happen, that they can, that they can do it. And, and you need a strong vision to do that. You need to really be authentic and, and you need to believe the, the message. You can't be, you know, just inspiring people by, by just talking and not really meaning anything. It has to be, uh, it has to be meaningful. And, uh, and, and you want to really instill a sense of confidence into the people around you. So they know that they they were handpicked by you, the boss, to be on this team. Kind of like the old Mission Impossible movies. You, mm-hmm. know? you looked at all the photos. Yeah. You picked the people. Well, uh, all you men and women in this team, I, I've handpicked you. And the reason is because you are the best, and you're going to be able to accomplish these, these incredible challenges we have in front of us. And that, I mean, those are those are the things that you know. It's not just in the movies or on TV. These are the things that the best leaders, the super bosses, as I call them, that's what they do that others uh, often do not. So true. Dr. Sidney Finkelstein, thank you so much for your great uh, insights. And everybody, go check out the book, Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Manage the Flow of Talent. And if you just go Google Matt Townsend Show and Sidney Finkelstein, you'll be able to come up with, uh, it'll pop up that last interview we did where, where you can then go in-depth and, and learn more about uh, being a super boss as well. Okay, Leadership Training 101. It's your responsibility if you're the leader. And if you're the participant, it's time to learn. We'll take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner, wrap up hour number two of the show. Stick with us. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his Coaching Corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, I spent many years going into organizations to do coaching and uh, training for their training departments. And some people loved it because they are like, sweet, three days, and I don't even have to go to my work. Others, you know, struggled with it. But if you're the one putting together the training and the development for the organization, you really need to invest a little time and energy to make sure you're getting what you want. Many times, even when I'll go do a keynote for a meeting or an event, a lot of times the people that are hiring me to come in, they don't even want to do a conference call. They don't want to do a call and, and like inform me as to the issues that the that their company is facing. That's just – I just just speak. Just do your pony show. Just get up there and just dance. So, man, you're you're spending money and you're going to have somebody there for an hour or two up to three, four, five days. Spend some time planning and preparing. We ought to be preparing, you know, for every hour of delivery, you ought to have two or three hours of preparation is how I look at it. And if if we're doing that, then you'll probably get more for your money. Also, I guess another basic component is some accountability. I always like to have pre-work done for people before they get there so they actually have their head thinking about it before we start the program. Then I like them to go through the program, and then I always like to have post-work, follow-up work as well. So there's tools. There's information for you. And uh, part of it, too, is make sure as a learner that you get in there and do everything you can to take advantage of these opportunities. 
a lot of the trainings that you'll have in your corporate life impact and could impact your personal life as well. Don't see them only as a business thing. And I don't, I've taught systems, I've taught all of these different programs, and each one of them can help you at home easily, just as much as they do at work. So take advantage of all of that. Now, some other headlines for us, Terry. Um, where do you want to start? Well, in light of the bombing in New York, and they caught this, uh, I guess, suspect, we call him at this point. And uh, some people started putting things on the t- publishing on Twitter yesterday, things that New Yorkers are more afraid of than ISIS. So uh, there are things that they are more terrified of than the ISIS threat. Yes. What, would, what could that be? Uh, this guy, it started with a guy named Bobby Big Wheel. That's what he goes on uh, <laughs> Just Twitter. Just call me Bobby Big Wheel. New York fears ranked. One, pushed onto subway tracks. Yeah. That's more likely to That's happen than an ISIS attack. Big so, deal. Uh, was it seamless outage? Seamless outage. So seamless seamless outage of services? I believe so. That might be like a, a reference to the train system? Could be, or maybe the power. If the power goes off, they have like rolling blackouts. I don't know. Huh. Uh, having to go to Times Square. Uh-huh. That's, he's scared of that because you know about Elmo and different yeah. people around there. Uh, the favorite uh, restaurant, Gentrified. Yeah. Having to go there. Uh, hipsters show up. That's scary. And then he puts down, uh, that's one through four, and then 1,563 would be ISIS. Wow. So that's his list. 1,563. Yeah. He goes on and says, five, sidewalk, great collapsing. Uh-huh. Six, falling air conditioner. Oh, yeah. Because there's that concern yeah. off of yeah. buildings. A uh, friend is now in an improv troupe. <laughs> that could be scary. Uh, neighbor has bed bugs. Because that means you soon you will. And oh. nine, getting back from uh, from EWR. I think he's trying to get back from an airport. Yeah, EWR. Huh. So it goes on. Summer blackouts. I think that's what the seamless outage would be, a summer blackouts. Uh, it's New York, so there's a lot of rats. They're talking about you, you well, find a, sure. a rat in your toilet. You dirty rat. That would be scary. Is uh, Cockroaches. Apparently most, if they do polling, most New Yorkers are afraid of cockroaches. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, this all makes more sense. These are all, you're more likely to run into these than maybe the terrorist attack. This guy says, number one, fear touched by a flying cockroach. (laughs) It's just not something you want. Uh, This message brought to you by Bernie Sanders supporters for the extermination of cockroaches. Roaches. Feel the burn. The that's a great uh, – that's why Bernie was such a big hit in New York. Lizzie O'Leary says, number one, stuck on a subway with your ex. <laughs> right? That's awkward and you don't want to do that. A pigeon to the face. Oh. <laughs> Bam! That's Three, dirty. stepping on a rat. See, more really? rat things. Yeah. People really don't like the rats. Four, unannounced landlord visit. <laughs> Surprise! Uh, musician neighbor. There's a fear. Yeah. Guys across the hall with his accordion. That'd be Matt Townsend as a kid. <laughs> totally. Uh, more subways. This guy says uh, in a subway car with no air conditioning. Yeah, that would be oh, that would be pretty nasty. Stuck. That's gross. Uh, and the third, what this guy put is they cut my bagel in half and then in half again. Oh, come on. They just keep just a quarter cutting bagel. them out. Things that people are more afraid of than ISIS. I'd be more afraid of... Somebody dying right next to my cronut bakery line. No, that was fine. 
Oh, yeah. People are fine with that. But just staying in line. Uh, stories began uh, with the, the story. This story is an air, airplane story. It begins with a distress call from an airplane. They don't end happily. Whenever there's a distress call, there's usually a problem. This yeah, one, right. a Saudi Arabian Airlines flight sent up an alarm saying it had been hijacked as it approached landing in Manila on Tuesday. The Philippines responded with full mobilization. As soon as the plane touched down, it was immediately isolated. Police, hostage negotiations, all this kind of stuff were there. But it turned out there was... No one on board. There was no one on board attacking the plane or hijacking the plane. The flight crew had merely mistakenly pushed the hijack button and uh, didn't know it. So they sent out a distress call. Holy cow. So the whole apparatus. Don't you hate it when you accidentally push the hijacking button? It's happened to me often. (laughs) You have a panic button, a hijack button. You mistake. It's a mispunch. It's a, yeah, it's a mispunch. Jeff knows about that. Oh, apparently not. Apparently not. <clears throat> I'm glad we don't have a hijack button because we'd be hitting it all the time. Oh, yeah. Mm. So they mistakenly put out an SOS that they were being hijacked, but maybe you know, somebody... Hey, mistakes may, happen. Maybe the button needs to be moved. And maybe it's by somebody's knee and they just accidentally tapped that's it. That's it. That's it. Oh, did you hit the hijack button again? <laughs> See? You need the angel sound. That means it's the right button you've pushed. What do you think they were trying to push? They were probably just trying to push the co-pilot eject button. Is that what it was? Oh, there it is. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've pushed that on an airline before. It'll suck you right out. You've got to be careful. Yeah. That thing. They're powerful. That'll break your eardrums. Okay, we'll take a break, folks. Uh, got a lot of uh, fun stuff next hour. Stick with us. Continue the discussion um, just about the crazy news of the day. Plus, we'll be talking about postpartum depression. I haven't ever suffered it, but I know people that have. Difficult stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live healthier lives. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. If you haven't learned this yet, apparently there's there are going to be people in your life. They're either, you know, they could be your children. They could be your, your spouse. Uh, in Ben's case, it could be a parole officer. But you're going to have somebody near and dear to you. And these people are going to be irritants, possibly. They also could be uh, help. They could be there to lift you, to make your life better. They can tear you down. <laughs> beat you up. But if you can't work with people, then what else are you going to be left with? Well, maybe a chicken. According to a uh, a report we just got, uh, a French sailor has embarked on a journey around the world accompanied by his pet hen named Monique. Garrick Sudi. There's Monique right there. A 24-year-old from Brittany, France, has been traveling with his pet hen and chronicling... What'd you say, Monique? What'd you say, babe? Aw, cute little Monique. He's been chronicling their adventures since 2014. And, you know, for a minute he thought, maybe, maybe I ought to get a cat. I'll just have a cat, and I'll bring a cat as my companion instead of Monique. But then he thought, you know, that's going to take a lot of work. So the hen was the ideal choice. It wouldn't work. I mean, it wouldn't take work. 
the hen would, you know, the hen would just be there to be his friend. So now they just sit on the boat, float around the world. She follows every, she follows him everywhere. She's like, just this little pal. They just sit on the side of the boat. So, Monique, what do you think about the sunset, Monique? What do you think, babe? Mmm, yeah. That's really good. What should we have for dinner, Monique? Oh, eggs? <laughs> okay, Monique. You know, I guess when it comes down to it, uh, in Castaway, it's better than a ball. It beats a volleyball. Well, at least a Wilson. volleyball would, like, you'd be able to decide what it answers. Monique, does my bother, does my mother irritate you? Monique, answer me. Don't make me wring your neck, Monique. Get over here, you little chicken. Yeah, I think she'd drive me crazy. And do they, it seems like it'd have a hard thing, it'd be hard to, like, stay on the boat for that little bird. Right? Because aren't boats a little slippery as you're walking along the sides? What does she grab onto her with her little I think she uses her little legs. beak to, like, grab onto the rope in case she slips. Yeah, I bet you Monique's just learned to hold onto the rope. I bet you she could tie a great knot. Oh, yeah. All those sailor knots. Man. All I need to do is shout Monique, and she will come to me. She's to sit on me, give me company. She's amazing. What would you choose out there in the Twitter sphere? What would you choose? If you were going to take a pet around the world with you, what would you pick? A chicken? A hen? Personally, I'd want a horse. I've never had a horse. I bet a horse would be hard on a boat. Have you seen The Life of Pi? Yeah. I'd choose a tiger. Yeah. You'd be dead. Ah, uh, that kid didn't die. Well, you're not that kid. <laughs> not to be rude. I'm very good with cats. <laughs> Here, kitty, 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 kitty. When you think about it, folks, in the end, you either, you're going to have to learn to work with people or you're going to be left circle, circumnavigating the world with a hen. Nothing wrong with that. Don't want to dissuade anybody from uh, doing that. People matter. And so people's skills matter. We probably, in fact, I believe strongly that that's one of the reasons you're here on this earth is to figure out yourself as you interact with others, to not get caught up in like the peer pressure where you think you've got to do something for some other reason than your values suggest. Instead, I think we're here to, to discern and figure out and become a, an agent that chooses how we're going to live. Do you believe that? Are you ever going to uh, be able to perfect dealing with people? I don't think so because every person you come across will be just a little bit different. But unless you want to spend the rest of your life on a boat or alone in your house – I mean, I get it. I'm somebody, I'm an introvert sometimes. I love to just be alone, except there's also times I want to go with people. I, I want to be with people. I want to hang out and learn and grow and change. So let's do what we can to start learning these skills on the personal level. Don't worry about everyone else learning them because they may not. But you in your life today can learn how to be a better team leader, how to be a better person how to read people, how to listen, how to understand, how to manage your emotion, how to manage their emotion. 
So a little challenge for you as we end this coaching corner. What are you going to do? What's one thing that you can go make better today in your life by working better with people? What's one relationship you need to work on? And what's the most important thing you need to learn to manage that relationship more effectively? And then get on it. Go look up something on psychology today. Go to my website at matttownsend.com. Anywhere you can, gather the information you can, get the help. Just listen to the show, for heaven's sakes. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's such an interesting dilemma that we are inherently kind of lazy, and we don't necessarily think stuff through. Everybody, this isn't a government problem. But think about it. If you had a job and, and an outside company would for free take you to lunch, give you ideas about how to do your job, influence you, not try to run you, but just give you ideas, simplify your life a little bit, help you, grease the skids. And if you owned a company and an outside company would help you do that for free, just for a little opportunity to inform you. Wouldn't you let that happen? It's pretty common. A lot of us just don't think about the long-term effects. And once this happens and once the lobbyists are in, we're in trouble. It reminds me of um, this crazy story that came out um, just recently about some teenagers that were in an assembly. And somebody at the school said, hey, we got a great idea. You can text in your questions and they'll pop up on the screen and everyone in the assembly can see your questions or your comments. It's a brilliant idea, right? A bunch of 14-year-old students who could text their questions anonymously. It's a trap. It's a trap. Don't let them do it. Well, in the end, this is a high school in Houston, learned the lesson that the hard way that when you invite a bunch of freshmen to send questions and comments, it would produce a deluge of obscene messages. For example, Miley Cyrus for president. Oh, come on. (laughs) Hitler was a good guy. Oh, come on. This is what's getting thrown up. Okay, hey. So what questions do you guys have? Any comments? Yeah, Hitler was a good guy. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Uh, The initiative was apparently supposed to be a fun way for incoming students and administrators and faculty to get to know each other. But with other comments like vaping saved my life. Oh, come on. And someone should get fired for this idea. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yay. All the kids are so happy. Well, it didn't work. They had the opportunity to type type up a bunch of ridiculous things. They were going up on the big screen, and by golly, they took it, one parent said. They are in ninth grade. What else do you think they're going to do? Use your brains. Same thing in Congress. When you have a bunch of billionaires in Congress being moved and swayed by the thinkers that are the companies that want legislation done, what do you think is going to happen? I don't know. Complexity? Legislation in the tens of thousands of pages that no one can read? Yes. We're perfectly aligned to get the results we're getting. we got to use our brains for heaven's sakes. Come on! You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And when I work with clients and couples, I cannot tell you. It's, it's almost every single couple. They, they just don't believe that uh, they, can do, that they can make a change themselves in themselves and make a change in their relationship by themselves. But one of my favorite quotes is, two heads are better than one, and one head is better than zero. (laughs) I would rather that just at least one person gets the idea that 
the of the outward mindset where my problem is I don't have enough ability, skill, control, um, insight into who I'm dealing with in these other people. And if I could take instead of just reacting to what they're doing to me, if I could actually turn it and go understand, go listen, go be impacted, then it would give me more and more power and more and more insight in how to create change and how to create a healthier life. Well, yeah, but what if the person's abusive? Right. If they're abusive, you got to be careful, but the principle still applies. If you're dealing with somebody that's abusive, it would be better that you pay attention and that you learn and you understand and you have an outward mindset instead of thinking, Their abuse is because of you. And then you go inward, I'm a loser, I'm no good, and then you shut yourself down and become something you're not. Over and over, I've seen these principles applied in the couples I work with, and it's one of the hardest things you can do because a lot of times when you listen to this, it induces some guilt because you're thinking, I'm I'm a loser. But the mere fact when you're you're starting to process the guilt, um, you're starting to turn inward aren't you? And inward's fine, except it's not going to change the situation. It's not going to change the scenario. So the outward mindset might simply be, how do I start to take the values and the principles I believe in and implement them with others? How do I say that I want to be, you know, a loving, caring, amazing, wonderful husband, except I I don't do that with my partner? And I, what if I don't see my partner as a person? What if I don't understand their needs? When I work with my clients, so many times um, I'll have a part, one of the partners say, I know, I know, she's been complaining about that for 20 years. And I'm like, okay, so have you tried to understand it? Well, she makes no sense. Okay, but have you tried to understand it? Then all we have to do a lot of times is sit down and start to understand it. But there's this weird game that we play where we all of a sudden think our problem is our spouse or our problem is, um, you know, they don't hug enough. They don't touch enough. And that becomes the big problem. And as long as I'm fixated on that problem of my wife not doing this or my husband that always does this, that problem is outside of me. And I'm not going to start to do anything with it. Three basic principles, basic steps, uh, seeing others, adjusting your efforts, and measuring your impact. It's called change, by the way. You got to change. Well, when when are they going to change? You can't worry about when they're going to change. You got to change. Well, you make it sound so easy. I know. And you make it sound so complicated. It's human nature. If you're mad, don't assume you're mad because someone else is violating your life. Why don't you just assume you're violating some principle? That's why you're mad. If you weren't violating a principle, you probably wouldn't have a need to be mad. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You, you sitting there, you listening in your car, wherever you are. What, what's the one thing that you know you need to do? The one thing that has been, oh, just chasing you. If I just, I just got to do this one thing. Once I'm in shape, this is going to happen. Once I, 
Well, once I'm a better dad, this is going to happen. We have these ideas. We carry them with us for years. Then all of a sudden, boom. You, you can't fix certain things. A heart attack. I really should have been exercising. <laughs> Blasted. It's it's a big deal, folks, and all of us are battling life. It's you know I don't ever want you to get depressed because of, we keep bringing you things you can do. You don't even need to do it, but you could do something. Just do the thing, the one thing that you know. If you would just do it, it would it would have an impact. Well, I can't. I've tried to start an exercise program. You don't even need to try to start an exercise program. Just go start doing an exercise program. You don't need to build up a really intense program. You don't need to. You don't need to, you know, lose weight and start. You don't need to buy a scale. You don't need to do all that. Just whatever's on your list. I really need to call my kids, but it's so hard to call them because they make me always feel so bad. All right. So why do you keep being prompted to call your kids? I'm a big believer that uh, the answers are already in you. I don't – when I work and coach somebody, I don't need to to make up new things for them to do. Lao Tzu, one of my favorite quotes, is at the center of your being, you have the answer. At the center of your being, you know who you are and you know what you want. So the center of you knows. Maybe your heart knows – But your head tells you something different. Your heart tells you you just need to focus on family. Your head might be telling you, but I I can't because I'll get behind in my career. Your heart might tell you, don't worry about weight. Worry about health. But your head's like, I don't know, I've already gained 10 pounds and I look horrible next to Stacy who went to high school with me. And then your, your head carries you away. Your heart already knows who you are. I call that your essence, right? The essence of who you are already knows that you're amazing, phenomenal, incredible. But then we get caught up in our ego and our ego's like, you got to beat everybody. You got to be faster. And if you're not going to be faster, then you need to label yourself as incredibly slow with no hope. Roadkill. So our egos make us either be better than everybody or worse than everybody. But your heart gets that, you know, you're good. Your heart gets that there's stuff you should be doing, but it also knows why you're not. It doesn't bring you peace, though. So your peace is only going to come by living in your essence. Your peace won't come long-term by living in your head because you're only as good as your head is good. And your head's going to change every time the lady next to you loses a pound. You're going to need to lose a pound if that's how you measure. If you measure by wealth, then as soon as your neighbors inherit more money or earn more money or triple their income or buy a bigger house, your head says, see, you're a loser. And your ego kicks in. Meanwhile, your essence doesn't care if you're in a big house or a little house. Your essence just cares that you're connected to God, that you are connected to family, and that you're becoming better at who you are supposed to be. Basic, right? Basic.
So be careful as we as we go through life. It's it's every one of us. We're chasing we're chasing the illusion. We're chasing the dream. We're chasing the stuff that's really not even what we're about, and we'll get entirely exhausted in the chase. And eventually, I'm worried that some of us will get too tired to chase anymore. But we'll find ourselves, you know, climbing that ladder of success one rung at a time. We finally get to the top and we realize the ladder's against the wrong wall. We've become something we didn't even care about becoming. So just watch it. So ask yourself this one question. What is the one thing, not big, just what's the first step I need to take today? And go take that step. What is it? To become the change, a little bit of the change. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, often we hear about people like John Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie as some of the most generous Americans of all times. Lists of the most generous philanthropists in the U.S. are regularly produced to show how much these men and women give away. But these lists may uh, actually distort our understanding of generosity. Dr. Richard Gunderman is Chancellor, Professor of Radiology, Pediatrics, Medical Education, Philosophy, Liberal Arts, Philanthropy, and Medical Humanities at, uh, at Indiana University. And he recently released an article about how many um, – about how our money actually may be an impoverished metric of generosity. He's here today to talk to us about it. Dr. Gunderman, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. The hard part about, you know, you know giving and the generous donations that we, that we hear all over the place, whether it's on campuses or, um, you know, in, in our news – is, is we're always measuring it in the dollar sign. Uh, so much, so many billions contributed by Bill Gates. So many billions contributed. I mean, even Donald Trump is now getting some bad press about his charitable donations. Hillary Clinton and her foundations. Talk about uh, the metric of using money to measure the generosity of others. Well, I think money is the most obvious way we'd try to appraise somebody's generosity. You know, if you're raising money and one donor gives you $100 and the other donor gives you $1,000, I think all of us would be inclined to think that the $1,000 donor had contributed more. Right. But there are problems with that. For example, simply giving somebody money doesn't mean you've actually benefited them. You know, there have been some rather notorious cases of large donations of money in the past that actually appear to have made their recipients worse off. Right. One one example would be uh, big donations by John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie to support uh, research and policy around eugenics. Uh, There was a lot of money given in the early part of the 20th century, Mm. but I don't think many of us would now say that 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 actually did good. Right. In fact, um, we've seen those examples of Oprah giving away a car, but then everyone needing to pay the taxes. Exactly. So uh, merely giving away money doesn't mean you've given it away well 
or that it's benefited someone. You could imagine, you know, you're stopped on the street by someone who asks you for money. Uh, it might matter a lot what the person intends to do with the money if you give that, give it to them. For example, if you're just feeding their drug habit, you may in fact be harming them. Hmm. Uh, you know, on the other hand, if they're, uh, you know, genuinely in need of food to survive, say, then uh, you have a chance to make a difference. You make a distinction about what you call true generosity. What, what do you mean by that term? Well, the idea there would be not just that you're giving away money, but you might be giving away your time or your talent. So uh, think about the people who've made the biggest impact in your life. You know, it might have been obviously your parents, but perhaps it was a Sunday school teacher Hmm. or a scout troop leader or a youth soccer coach. Uh, These people didn't give us a dime, but in many cases, they've made huge differences in our lives. And that's the kind of giving that that doesn't even appear as a blip on the radar screen when our entire understanding of philanthropy is co-opted by money, Hmm. large donations from the wealthy. And sometimes I guess we feel like we're not doing enough because we're not wealthy people that can just give cash. Yeah, my big fear is that as these rankings of, you know, the countries or the world's greatest philanthropists appear year after year, uh, that ordinary people like us begin to think, gosh, I'm, I'm irrelevant when it comes to generosity. You know, these uh, Silicon Valley billionaires can afford to give away hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. What's my tiny check in comparison with that? Why should I even try? And that's a terrible message, uh, partly because one of the ways generosity enriches our lives is uh, by bringing out the best in us. And each one of us, you know, if we if we want to lead the best lives of which we're capable and make the biggest contributions we can, uh, we need to know in our hearts that we can make a difference. Hmm. So to to silence us or squelch our efforts by reminding us how tiny our cash donations are in comparison with the super rich, I think is uh, potentially to do grave harm. It seems like exactly that you... Uh, just because of these, the names have money, and then they create these funds, these accounts, these um, these donations. But those donations also end up republicizing and republicizing the name, and over it, exactly it almost right. becomes a market. And when you're giving away money uh, in those quantities and on that scale you almost necess- necessarily can't know very well the people you're trying to help. Now, I, by the way, I'm not trying to say that the world would be a better place if you know Bill Gates and Warren Buffett kept their money to themselves. That's not my point at all. Right. The, but the point is, uh, one of the key features of generosity at its best is you actually know the person you're helping. You see the difference your efforts are making in their life, and perhaps you even build a relationship with them over time. Well, that's hard to do if you're dispensing money by the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, but each of us, you know, in our own neighborhoods, our own faith communities, our own school systems, we can each make a a, a big difference, even if we're not giving away any money at all. Hmm. You you used, in fact, you almost paraphrased part of it there, that Aristotle quote about uh, the appropriate thing to the appropriate person at the appropriate time. I guess that's how you know you're really being generous. 
That's exactly right. You can't simply write a check and say, I've done good, or write a bigger check and say, I've done even more good. It's important to know the person or people to whom you're giving, why you're giving now instead of some other time, how you're giving. Are you giving anonymously? Is your name tied to the gift? Is it in a lump sum, let's say, if it's money or you know installments over time? And perhaps uh, the most important question, why are you giving? You know, some of us occasionally give because we're shamed into it or, you know, because we want to make sure that our our names appear on the donors list or perhaps uh, in the gold division instead of the silver division of donors. Again, I'm not trying to say that's entirely corrupt, but, you know, we want people at our best to be giving because we believe in uh, the cause and the people to which we're giving. And that means knowing those people and knowing those causes uh, well enough enough to be able to foresee the impact that our gifts are going to have. Yeah, I love that. And I, like, yeah, like you keep saying, we, we don't want to discourage it. And I mean, I guess a university, for example, they'll take your money anyway. I mean, I, I guess as long as it's legal money, whatever the motivation, but somewhere deep down the line, we want to make sure that the lessons are also being learned uh, about uh, this more truly generous giving. Yes, perhaps. uh the amount of money that Americans give and to whom they give it is important. But equally, or in my mind, even more important is the question, what is the impact of this giving on the character of Americans? Are, are we giving in ways that are helping us as donors, as recipients, become better people? Are we enriching our community? Uh, you know, is our society somehow better off because of this giving? If we don't attend to that carefully and clearly understand what we're doing, in some cases, our gifts can actually more harm than good. Mm, so true. And we could even be unintentionally creating a culture where we expect, you know, the corporations to be the givers, not the people. We'll take a break, continue this discussion with Dr. Richard Gunderman and his uh, wonderful insights into why money is an impoverished metric of generosity. It might be the poorest way to be generous. Uh, we'll come back, continue the discussion, also getting into how your time and giving of your time may be even a better metric. Stick with us. It's the Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Dr. Richard Gunderman. Uh, Dr. Gunderman is a chancellor professor at uh, Indiana University. He also is a 10-time recipient of the Indiana University Trustees Teaching Award and in 2015 received the Indiana University School of Medicine's Inaugural Inspirational Educator Award. Today he's talking with us about why money is an impoverished metric of generosity. Dr. Gunderman, thank you so much for being with us. A pleasure. Now, one of the points of this, I guess, as we get into the charitable donation, you know, side of of humanity and the giving side, uh, the donation doesn't always have to be money. It could be time. It could just be yourself. Absolutely. We, every one of us, whether you're a billionaire 
or impoverished. Every one of us comes into contact with people every day who are in need in one way or another. In some cases, that need may be financial, but I think far more often, uh, certainly for me in medicine, uh, you know, you come across people in distress. It's part of our work to minister to human suffering, and uh, that requires that you be attentive, uh, curious, um, compassionate. And if you can lend someone, uh, you know, sometimes uh, an ear to listen, sometimes a shoulder to cry on, I would regard that as a a very important act of generosity. You know, you have your time is limited, you have other things you need to do, but you take time to sit down with that person and talk about what's on their mind, give them a chance to open up their heart. Uh, You've made a difference in somebody's life. And it's it is a resource that's um, in a way just as difficult to give as as money um, because it's a limited resource. That's absolutely right. I mean, let's face it; it's not necessarily easy to make money. And you know, hats off to people who uh, manage to do pretty well in that regard. But in a way, it takes far more insight and uh, you know human intuition. Uh, to listen to somebody who's unburdening their heart to you, you know, about a relationship difficulty they're having or a loss they've suffered. To me, that actually makes bigger demands on us as people than, uh, you know, laying my checkbook down on a desk and uh, writing a check to somebody. Right. And it's more a part of you. I mean, for me to listen and sit there and be with you and actually be empathic and attentive it's really me giving more of me than maybe the check. That is a great point, Matt. You are, in fact, bringing more of yourself to life when you're really present with another human being. And, you know, again, in medicine, we get a chance to do that. Babies are born. We care for people, you know, in the late stages of their lives. Sometimes we're with with someone as they're dying. I mean, that really calls upon everything you have to offer as a human being. That you know, that that invites us to be fully present in a way uh, handing handing somebody a check just can't. And right. uh, you know, when you do that and feel you've done your best at it, I think you really feel like it's brought you to life. I mean, it's a it's a privilege to to get to care for another person, to share with another person in that way. Mm. It changes it changes the giver and the receiver. And one one of the things I noticed too is we we have so many of these organizations that we might donate our money to and then find out that only 10% of the money we gave even went to the bottom line kind of helping of the the person in need where if i was involved if i if i were there i would i'd probably be able to give a much higher yield of what i'm giving that's absolutely right again i'm not trying to discourage people from donating money but when you give your time you know for sure what it went to and you saw the effects of it with your own eyes when you pop a check in the mail or you know <laughs> click a button on your college or university's website i you know i suspect right. it's put to very good use but you really don't know for sure and you certainly don't see the effects of it with your own eyes in as immediate a way do you do you notice are there other factors such as race or gender that determine or dictate influence our generosity I think there's no doubt about it. That's not an area in which I'm an expert, but it's clear, for example, that at least some stages of life, women 
may be more generous than men, and uh, there are differences between different uh, ethnic, uh, religious, and racial groups. Hmm. But the the point I would want to make is that we're all human beings, and we're all able to express this virtue that's been recognized for thousands of years that we call generosity. And one crucial point is that uh, in being generous, we're helping the beneficiaries, the recipients of our treasure and time and talent. But in fact, I deeply believe that we're also enriching our own lives by giving well. Mm. And it's uh, it's funny because it, it seems like when I was growing up, a lot of the generous giving was based around, you know, kind of a, a religious mentality or a church setting, a religious group, a paradigm that came from, you know, the religious areas now. And then it seems some of that has been offloaded from churches carrying that burden more to NGOs and government entities. Yeah, I think that's right. And as giving becomes more impersonal, like as we expect, I don't know, federal or state or even local agencies to tend to the needs of others, perhaps so we don't have to be bothered with it, right? Mm -hmm. I paid my taxes, I've discharged my responsibility, now let the uh, state-funded social service service agencies take care of these problems. I think we're in fact impoverishing ourselves. Mm. As we remove ourselves from the playing field of giving and sharing, we're actually diminishing our own lives. That's so true. And um, in the end, it's, again, we're just, I always say, we're always a disaster away from getting right back to it. That's exactly right. You look at what happened after Hurricane Katrina uh, in Louisiana. You look at what happened uh, in New York City after 9-11. You know, nobody wishes for a disaster, but in those situations, we seem to have a capacity to come together uh, to connect with one another that tends to remain hidden uh, for much of the rest of our lives. You know, just imagine you're at work and uh, the elevator grinds to a halt, you know, and it's yeah. utter darkness and you're trapped with with uh, the people you ride the elevator with every day. But now uh, you're, you consider yourself in some peril. Well, you know, people begin to reach out to each other in ways we don't normally do. So true, and because humans will naturally reach out to humans, it's. But then, if we're kind of in this outsourcing of generosity mentality, where, I, yeah, I paid it. I, yeah, I paid it. Work, so we're good. Got my charity that's covered. A, that's a great point. I, you know, it, it, at our worst, we aim to discharge our charitable obligations as quickly, as painlessly, and impersonally as possible. That's giving at its worst. This is just a box I have to tick off Mm -hmm. on my to-do list. I've done it, and now I can get back to what's important to me. That's a terrible attitude because it indicates that our human priorities are out of whack. We've let some lower things get on top of some higher things. And, you know, sometimes we need a reminder that it's not so much what we get or accumulate for ourselves, but what we give and share with others that really defines us and, uh, you know, is most responsible for the quality of our lives. In fact, you mentioned that you don't need to be the billionaire giver like Car- Dale Car- or not Dale, but uh, Andrew Carnegie. But you need I mean, some of the great uh, leaders, um, 
I guess now Saint Mother Teresa, uh, Gandhi, these people died with nothing and yet are known as people that were so generous in their life. I think that's right. And take the case of uh, the woman I've called most of my life, Mother Teresa. You know, she'd taken a vow of poverty. She essentially had no personal property to her name, uh, but she gave a great deal, not only treasure, but mainly time, talent, and I would say gifts of the heart. But she also served as kind of a beacon for the rest of us. And I think maybe the greater good of her life was not the people that she helped directly herself, but how she helped in, in, uh, inspire in the rest of us that aspiration to give and make a difference in the lives of others. Mm. What would you say, what advice would you give to someone now who, who maybe wants to go in, restart that truly generous spirit and, uh, and kick it into gear? Well, there are, you know, many possibilities. A simple one is to uh, find an opportunity, you know, to perhaps read to a child who's struggling in school, uh, get involved, you know, in a, in a soup kitchen, as people say. But I'll tell you, one of the, I think one of the most important steps we need to take to becoming as fully generous as we can be is to actually educate ourselves about what it means to be generous and the difference generosity can make in our lives. And uh, if you want a short work you could read that would fire your uh, imagination in this area, Mm. one of the ones that I think is the best, it's become trite to some people, but is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. The Tale of Ebenezer yeah. Scrooge, that is not just a simple children's fable or, uh, you know, a homely story we should dust off every year around Christmas time. That is, in fact, a very powerful and deep exploration of the difference generosity can make not only in the life of a person, but the lives of every uh, person that person touches. Mm, I love it. And and that's I mean that's something you could start reading now so that you're up and at it by the time the holiday season comes and you could sh- literally transcend your your holiday. Take Absolutely. it to a completely different level. A Christmas carol is at most a 90-minute read, and uh, here's the way to make the most of it. Find at least one other person who's willing to read it with you and talk about it, and you've already started practicing the virtue of generosity. Mm. Well, Richard, you got a great spirit, my friend, and uh, we appreciate you being on the show, giving us some light. We definitely need it. Dr. Richard Gunderman's his name, again, a professor of radiology at the Indiana University, author of the article, Why Money is an Impoverished Metric of Generosity. In fact, let's kick in our time as another measurement as well. We'll take a break, come back, continue helping you see the good in the world, folks. It's everywhere. In fact, it's in you as well. We'll take a break. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Hey friends, welcome back. You know, according to the National Philanthropic Trust, the average annual household contributes $2,974 to uh, family philanthropy, giving, donations. And overall, Americans give about $373 billion in in 2015, which is a 4.1% increase from 2014. So don't think 
people's giving is going down. They're giving more and more, and that probably goes up and down with the economy as well. But uh, I think our guests made some great points about the fact that where this giving comes from, it doesn't necessarily needs, need to come from your uh, the big corporations, the big rich people. And, and a lot of times I feel like it's, it is what happens. We – you know, we know our organization raised all this money, and so they paid to the United Way, and so that means we don't need to pay f- at the United Way. Yeah, the problem is you end up losing the opportunity, the peace, the lesson learned, and you even end up losing the opportunity to have your family become a part of that. One of the things we do in my church is uh, we used to have janitors that would clean all of the chapels, and now what they've found is why? Let's have the members clean the chapels. So they pass around a list every week, and you sign up to take your family to go clean your church. And what a powerful opportunity to uh, to take your family and wash the windows and the doors and the door handles and the restrooms in your church. And the minute you're doing that, amazingly, the conversations change. Now, when I, I just signed our kids up, and when I let them know we're doing it, they call, all kind of looked at me like, ah, can't someone else do it? Sure. Problem is, that's how we become generous, is by giving, not by having someone else give for us. So suggest highly that we all get our heads back in the generous mode. And again, I, I personally feel like I'm I, I'm strapped. I can't just keep giving financially, but I have time and I have talents and I have resources that are other than just financial resources that I can give. Let me donate time. My wife just donated time for our, our sports teams. We've donated time at school. We may donate. I donate speeches and go do free speeches all over the uh, the place just to help because I can give. That's what I can do. I can't just keep throwing cash at everything, but we got to get our head back in the game. Plus, another way I think to become grateful and and more generous is noticing what you've been given yourself. A fun activity you might want to try is sit your family down and just one night, let's try to come up with 100 things that as a family we are all grateful for. Blessings, gifts, wonderful things we've been given. It could be our own talents. It could be things people have given to us. How many times has somebody just showed up with cookies at our house just because, or friends, or neighbors, and make a list of 100 things that you are more grateful for. Nothing will make you happier than when you actually can can identify the good things that happen in your world. Um, another powerful tool is simply give your passion. Find something that you really love to do and share it with other people. Uh, I just had a friend talk to me about how they go as a family because everyone in the family except the dad loves to sing, loves to act, loves to entertain. So the father, uh, because it makes his family so happy, they go travel and spend their vacation time performing at, uh, you know, kind of different festivals. And I'm like, really? Are you getting better at performing? And he's like, not really. But it sure makes my daughters happy, and they'll go spend a month of their vacation time just doing what they're passionate about. A powerful gift you could give would be passion. 
Another powerful gift would be compassion. How many times now do we hear these stories about the uh, these refugees coming from Syria and from other countries, and yet we don't have compassion for them? Well, yeah, they're going to kill us. Well, again, as we talked about in the first hour, statistically, not really likely. You know, three in 10 billion will create a problem for you. But we can still give. We can still care. We can still share. Uh, just giving, losing a part of yourself to uh, to give back to another. And one of the other rules just simply of giving and being generous is whenever we direct the hour, the arrows outside of us to enable and help other people, it stretches us and makes us bigger people. Anytime we're pushing the arrows back into ourselves, it shrinks us. It makes us smaller people. If we want to be a bigger people, a bigger population, we got to push those arrows out towards others. So a little coach's corner for you. Just some hope, some insight. Remember, part of the goal here on the show is to help you see the good in the world. And if we can, also help us all be better in the world. That's hour number two. We'll be back. More ideas, more insights right here on The Matt Townsend Show. <laughs> 